Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, Episode 5, Editing and Organizing Game Text, recorded at Metatopia 2012 by Fred Hicks, presented by Fred Hicks, Jason Pitt, Amanda Valentine, and John Adamus. So this is the editing and organizing game text panel. Uh, I'm Fred Hicks from Evil Hat Productions, and these people are all more qualified to talk about that than me, so I'm going to let them talk. I'm really standing up so quickly. No. We, we can talk about editing the sexism out of your gaming. It's upcoming. Whatever. Let's let's edit and organize this whole panel. That's a, what are we gonna do here? We can edit that out later. Yeah, but, <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear you. Okay, so Alright, so I'm Amanda Valentine. I am a freelance editor. Um full-time freelance editor for a year now. Um, and I've done a lot of editing with Evil Hat Productions and with Margaret Wise Productions and also Galileo Games, Holy Poker Games, Hockey Games. The list um, goes on and on. And pretty much anybody else who wants to hire me. Uh, I'm Jason Pitt uh, with Genesis of Legend Publishing. I'm small designer, publisher, um, working on my first product. Uh, and I've been struggling with organization of text for the past year. So he's going to ask all the questions that you're afraid to raise your hand. It, 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 pretty much. Uh, I'm John Adamus. I am also a freelance editor for about a year. Uh, I work primarily for Evil Hat and Margaret Weiss Productions, although I am available for just about anybody who can find me. It's and a, he, he's blisteringly fast, like yeah. feel the skin off your face fast. <laughs> Well, it almost feels like that sometimes, Sean. We'll send, it, we'll send it something off to him and say, uh, "Yeah, we needed about a week." And the next day, if not that night, he's Often like, "I've started. I've started editing." You know, forty-five minutes later, here's the fully edited copy, and I look through it, and yes, he actually did edit every yeah. single part of it. There are comments all throughout it. Yeah, I'm like, "Oh my god, how is he doing that?" I try to have a two-day turnaround. <laughs> Unless the thing is over 300 pages, I try to have it done in two days. Anyway. But that's just me. So, you know, that's not, well, we that's can not talk the about norm. That too. I'm not the like, norm. Anyway, uh, Amanda, why don't you uh, take the lead on this? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I've been editing game text for eight years now, and the organization of it is something I continue to struggle with. Um, why? Because it feels like we can't talk about this stuff until we've kind of explained the whole game. But how can we explain the whole game when you don't know what this stuff is yet? I really want to do the Matrix thing where I can just download the whole thing and then we can have a conversation. Yeah. But how you present the material is very difficult. So what I tend to do is give a full overview of the game, but it's brief. It doesn't answer all your questions by any stretch of the imagination. And then we'll answer all those questions later. Yeah. But one of the main criticisms that I get back of my games is, well, it's so choppy and kind of redundant. I'm like, well, I know, but how can I talk about this if you don't know what this means? So I, I, I do not have a solution. For how to I mean, I, th- I think part of that is, is the problem that... It, it, uh, we're talking about role-playing game books here, but we, you know... Uh, 
board game text might be a, a separate thing that we can talk about in a little bit. Um, uh, role-playing game books uh, serve a dual purpose. Uh, they are to be read through the first time as a, you know, as a reading text, as a, an instructional text. And then they are to later be referenced. Right. And you organize a reference text differently from a reading slash teaching text. Yes. But uh, at least until um, you know they get, you know, here's a nice thick book that is re- with reprogrammable pages. Um, uh, you know, you're not not easily going to be able to do that kind of fluid double layout, double edited. Oh my God, I can't even think about that um, uh, uh, presentation. <laughs> Uh, and so. there's a third level that makes it even more challenging. Uh, who here has seen, uh, has read all of the rules of a game? Who has had it explained to them by someone who owned the book? Mm, yeah. The, the, the third function is you're trying to train the trainers. Mm-hmm. Right. Teach teachers how to teach the game. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. Very tricky. So it's how do you serve three masters? I think a lot of that, because I have a different process than Amanda, which is not surprising. Um, I think a lot of that comes from, a, there's a sense of paralysis because we, there's so many things to do. We, we can talk about combat, we can talk about experience, we can talk about character creation, we can talk about world building, we can talk about reference materials, we can talk about any manner of things within a role-playing game. And some things naturally go together, go together better. You know, your your section on economics generally tends to go better with an equipment list, that sort of thing, or your character creation generally is what people want to dive in first, so maybe you want to put that near the front, but a lot of that to fight paralysis can be done just with a simple decision about, well, what sort of experience or what sort of emotion am I trying to put forth in my product? What, what sort of vibe do I want people to pick up on first? And what's the first, what's my strongest thing? I'm a big fan of, put, if you've got, more, hopefully you have more than one strong thing in your book. And if you don't, put it in the middle and have it, have it sort of tentpole like a mountain and then everything else can kind of fall to the side. But if you've got more than one strong thing, lead with it. Even if it's something really weird like combat, there's nothing wrong with having, there's no right way and there's no wrong way. But put play to your strengths and come back to them and that will help establish a sort of tone in your text so that when you do have to write something or create something, you can nail the tone and always come back to it when you get kind of lost because you might have a dicey chapter on, well, social interaction is not our strongest thing, but it's okay because we make up for it with these four other thong things that are coming. So just, just ride the wave a few more pages and experience will carry you through. Yes? That, that raises a question for me, which is, as an editor, should you be going, these aren't very strong, Yes. Well, where, where's the role there, right? Uh, the role of an editor there is to make it stronger. Yeah. But it, it, it ha- it'll have a certain, at least in my experience, it'll have a certain baseline strength um, because otherwise you'll just send the whole thing back. Right. <laughs> um, and, until it gets a baseline and then you build on it from there. But not everything is going to be, if we're going to use numbers to equate a scale, not everything is going to be a 10. Some things are going to have to be the best they can at an 8. And that's okay because 3 eights is still pretty good. But it's not only three, if you're following my crappy number metaphor. <laughs> the, um, yes, the, uh, the editor's job is to make it better, but some sections are naturally going to be stronger because maybe they were written by a different person who's got a, different, uh, a really different view or a specific skill and asset that they can, they can make use of because they're really good at explaining how combat should go. They're very crunchy and they love numbers, that sort of thing, or they really love parentheses. Or there's somebody who... Um, 
really, really loves, like, they just want to talk example text about how you should build a character. And they go on and on for days about it, and you have to kind of prune it back. Because most products have or can have a lot of different people coming together, the editorial job there isn't so much to worry about, well, person X is stronger than person Y, so I want person X to do more of the work. It's about blending all those voices seamlessly together. And that, that covers a lot of the strength. Because then it suddenly sounds like one person did all this work when really it didn't. Now, one thing I'd like to talk about, Amanda, is uh, some of the strategies we used in Dresden Files to address this kind of multi-axis way of going through the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it was pretty early on we realized that some of these side conversations that we were having that we wanted to have in the text, but dear God, too many sidebars was going to kill it or little, lots of little sidebars it was going to yeah. be weird, could just move out, live in the margins, and be used as kind of a, a, another vector for discovering things about the main flow of the text. So you could read the main flow of the text through and just uh, sort of, uh, I guess, linearly experience it. Um, but you always had the, essentially the commentary track yeah. living off to the side there, and it, it ended up throwing some very interesting light onto it. But I, I want to hear from you on the, the editorial side of that. Okay, if you're not familiar with the Dresden Files, um, it's, it's done in-world. In it has an in-world voice to it. One of the characters from the novel. It's like put out for something. Yeah, you see her. Um, yeah, I know that. Um, and it, it's it's like a, our conceit is that it's a proofread copy of the game, um, and so it has lots of comments in the margins from other characters, and it's all done in character. Um, but the I love the marginalia. These are the comments that are just written all through, because it did let us really address some of the issues that were there in organizing the text. Like, well, why didn't you include this here? Well, because I wasn't sure about this, so I talked about it on this page. Well, there, we've taken one of the reader's questions, turned it into a comment left in the margins, and, you know, given a way to get so, to it. So, for example, on this page, we've got uh, the main flow of the text here, but a clarification about the rules in here, off to the side. Uh, you know, occasionally it's also just setting color commentary and so right. forth that might break up a reading and clarity of the rules. Uh, uh, so you get this nice uh, uh, way for people to, would you like to know more? Click, whoop, only in paper. But let's pass this around. Unless you're looking at it in PDF. I did yeah. How much did that cost you in terms of time? <laughs> if you All, had of had All of it? <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's not a, in terms of effort, it's not a cheap thing to do. Um, and that may ultimately mean that it may not uh, be a cheap thing in terms of cost if you're outsourcing it as opposed to, I don't know, owning your own company and doing layout for it. Um, but uh, uh, it, it really pays off and you will find that a lot of people who do layout care very passionately about the subject of clarity and organization. It and Pardon? Speaking as a writer, doing writing within that scope, it actually makes life easier once you buy it. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. Once once you have the freedom to do drill in stuff like that, that isn't necessarily in a sidebar sort of way. Um, although sidebars are another tool for this. Yes. Um, uh, uh, it lets that it lets that writer say, "Hey, I've got four ideas about this thing. They don't belong in this thing, but they should live near it somehow." Right. And yeah. so you put those in little 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 boxes in your uh, well, not boxes, but you 
you do some sort of markup strategy or whatever it is that the layout person has said yes do this and it, that um, needs to be very clear oh yeah it that's that's something that you're, you get, yeah. get your editor talking to your layout person as early into the process as possible yeah. you, uh, so that they can talk about how the presentation of the organizational need is handled right. You often want a headline of some kind. You want a different color, maybe a different font, maybe a different voice. Like, for instance, maybe it's in the sidebars that you address the reader in first person. Like, you should do this. I mean, do that in the text, too. I yeah. prefer that. But, um, but something that makes that clearly stand out. And those are also things, then, that are going to stand out visually. Mm-hmm. Like, when I'm leafing through a book, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know what that sidebar looks like. I can find that section again yeah. really quickly. Because, you know, I, it, I yeah, know this, where it this, lives. This, this is part of the reason why your layout person and your editor, editor <laughs> yeah. need to work fairly close in concert if they aren't the same person. Sometimes you can get that package, but that's that's a little weird. Um, uh, I'm thinking about Jeremy Keller, who's, yeah. who's going to be doing that for some of us. Uh, but uh, uh, because the editor knows what role certain boxes are supposed to play, whereas a writer might be going through going, uh, sidebar, 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 sidebar. But your editor is going to go, no, this is this kind of a note, and this is a second kind of a note, and I need to talk to the layout person and make sure that they are aware that there are two different kinds of notes, and we agree on how that should be marked up so that it will be represented properly when it's then taken into the, the, the graphic design phase. Right, and that is a lovely thing. Uh, for instance, there's different voices in the Dresden files mm-hmm. in different fonts mm-hmm. and font colors, which makes it very clear. Um, also in Burning Wheel... Uh, there's the little imps and burning empires as well. Yeah. Uh, different icons that are indicating, oh, it's this kind of content yeah. um, for each different sidebar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here we're going to have the rules lawyer imp show up and talk about this. Here we're going to have the setting imp come up and talk about this or whatever. Another thing when you're dealing with PDF, I, you can speak to how much work this is, but <laughs> having a PDF where if you touch, if you click on the page number, takes you to that page. It's a little bit of extra work. PDF really useful. Yeah. Um, in general, I don't like working from a PDF because I am very tactile. I recognize pages. Like, that's how, I, like I was saying, you know, you have a sidebar that really strikes you visually. When I don't have that, you know, with a PDF, I don't really have that, and so I get a little confused. But if I can just click on a page and it takes me there immediately, that really solves a lot of those issues. You know, actually, that goes to part of why uh, at Able Hat we like to make sure that if somebody's buying the print product, they also get the PDF. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like a PDF is a, regardless of whether or not PDF works for you as a reader, like a straight through reader, um, a PDF is going to give you some utility uh, from the reference axis of needing to use an RPG text. Um, uh, that print isn't in the sense that I can hit Control F or whatever and find you know the twenty references uh, pretty easily. And also, like you said, that the, the clicking so forth. What PDF doesn't give you is the ability to stick your finger in three different points in yes. the book and flip the pages rapidly and see that information side by side quite so easily. Um, uh, you know, so I, I, my my ideal cases are people are buying physical artifacts that they also get the digital component with, so they're getting maximum uh, value in terms of how they can slice through their experience of, of using the, the content. So, could you compare Dresden Files to your lead-up project for Dresden Files, Spirit of the Century, and the differences in organization there? Um, what worked, what didn't in Spirit of the Century compared to Dresden Files? Spirit of the Century happened six years ago, man. <laughs> there were fewer beatings. <laughs> there, were, there were fewer beatings. Uh, uh, I mean, I think if our friend Lydia uh, did the uh, the main bulk of editing on Spirit of the Century at the time. 
honestly, because I was, she, she did a great job of finding a lot of places that Rob and I and Lenny had been unclear. Um, I, I feel like she pursued the clarity very well. Uh, uh, but she's also absurdly smart, so I think she understood like some of our possibly esoteric decisions about the uh, it's not to say these people aren't absurd and smart, but I mean, Lydia has conversations that are stratospheric. Her husband uh, uh, writes co- uh, code compilers for a living, and she was the first person he could have an intelligible conversation about that with. She's a giant brain, right? Um, and uh, uh, so I think she, she, she got and had already internalized some of the weird ways that we would put the text together and I think if we'd had someone like Amanda or John um, who I, I think do a better job of uh, reading a text um, as if uh, you know they were many numbers of people who might read the text um, uh, we might have gotten uh, things organized a little bit better we might have cut out certain subsystems even I mean there, there may have been actually significant parts of the design that, that could have been altered simply by the, the scrutiny for clarity and consistency. Actually, um, this is, this not all of the rules always agree with each other, and uh, I mean that, that might occur somewhat in the Dresden Files these days because it's a really damn thick book. But uh, but it's impressive how much the rules do agree with each other uh, uh, there. Whereas in Spirit of Century, I think there are some things where like you look at this and you look at that, and you're like, no, those were two different versions of the design, weren't they? And they, they just didn't both didn't get caught up when uh, when when things changed. And this is part of why, as an editor, I don't really want to be in on design conversations. Because then I bring assumptions it. to it. And I'm like, oh yeah, this makes sense to me because I had conversations with the designers that never actually made it mm-hmm. into the book. Mm-hmm. And so you want somebody who's looking at your text who hasn't been there for the whole thing. Yeah, I would say early on, consult with your editor yes. about like organizational decisions, like should we put these chapters in this order? Yes. But don't explain the don't innards get all to them yet. Crunchy. You know, they you need to please don't. As an please don't. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of my editors, his approach to accessing this was, he read chapter one, commented on chapter one, moved to chapter two, commented on chapter two, having no idea what was in chapter three, and going in a linear fashion would model what a reader would do. Mm-hmm. Oh. Or at least so yes, granted. Um, and modeling it that way could point out things that had not yet been explained. Mm-hmm. Um, surprisingly, few of them. I'm shocked. <laughs> well, that was um, a nice discovery. Yeah, uh, but so that's useful. Um, so, what are the different kinds of content within a book? Um, I'm thinking that there's rule mechanics, mm-hmm. guidance and advice, um, lists of things that you can plug in, mm-hmm. uh, equipment, gear, tabular or otherwise. Yeah, tabular or otherwise. Um, setting, setting, setting flavor. Setting flavor. Uh, flavor, fiction, which I, may I would, be tied into flavor. I would yes. even argue that tone can be its own kind of content. Sure. It's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 you know, it's something that is laid, like, laid over like a thin gauze, but it, it's there as it's... Right, but that's the only thing that we can't move around. Well, sure. Uh, so we've got all of those various things. So are you integrating them, or are you splitting them apart? I think this is where part of the issue comes in, because... Like coming back to the readers, you are going to have some people who start at the beginning 
and they're going to read through to the end, and then they're going to use it as a reference book after that. But, I mean, how many of you have read a game book from cover to cover in order? Maybe is, half of you. How often are you motivated to do that with all of the game books that you have? <laughs> right, I mean, you don't know the game books I have. Oh, I, I, I have a fairly large library, but I'm like, Nobilis, this was actually interesting enough for me to read all the way through, and many others were not. And, you know, that, that's a that's a problem. And so, I mean, some people obviously are reading them through cover to cover, and in an ideal world, you want people to read everything that you've written in the order that you've presented it because you tortured yourself over how to do that, and you made very purposeful choices on how to do that, and that's how you intended to, to present it. But probably a good half of people, if not more, are going to grab your book, they're going to open it somewhere in the middle, they're going to find the chapter that they know is interesting to them, and they're going to start there. Now, part of what this means is, and we had a uh, we had a, a panel earlier about you know how to not offend people when you're dealing with controversial issues and all that kind of stuff. And one thing we talked about was putting something in the beginning of your book, saying, "Okay, here's here's what I know. Here's what I was trying to do to sort of give context." We cannot assume your readers though are going to actually read that, no matter how well intentioned you were. You can't assume they're going to read your introductory material. I mean, most of us skip all that intro stuff. You're like, oh, this is all. Oh, this is cool. I'm going to look at some cool pictures, flip to the back, see the character sheet. Did they cover this topic in the index? Do they have an index? Done. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that may be the, the initial experience that someone has with your game. So you need to assume on some level that people are going to come in on any given page, and that's where they're going to start. Which is why you want to have lots and lots of page references, forwards and backwards. Mm -hmm. You want to occasionally remind people of what a term means, because even if you define them all in your front section, you know, after I've read 20 pages in, I'm not remembering what you said back about that word. And if I have to flip back, I'm going to be annoyed. So, you know, spend the five words to remind us of that definition. You don't need to repeat it word for word, but just enough to trigger memories. Um, yes, game text is going to be redundant. You're going to feel like you already said this, and you did, but you need to say it again. This is, sorry. And you need to say it in a slightly different way. Um, you need to constantly be saying it in a way that's going to grab somebody else. Like, you read one explanation, you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. You read it written in a different way, you're like, oh, I get it. And, and that, that, that motivation to provide the different ways is part of why the marginalia in Dresden Files particularly works, because... We wanted to throw these clarifications in with some frequency because we know this is going to be a large book. You might be hitting the spell casting chapter today. You might be hitting the powers chapter tomorrow. And they're both going to talk about this concept that exists back in chapter three. Yeah. Um, uh, but the marginalia got to live along alongside those things and to have, you know, Harry, who uh, in fiction they have the idea of the dummy. The, 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 in, in any one scene, there's the person who uh, is there for the person who has the knowledge to explain it to so that they're not just disgorging information directly at the reader, but they're having a conversation on the page. Uh, in the role-playing game, our dummy was Harry Dresden, who was reading through the role-playing game about his life and going, wait, what the hell are you talking about here, Billy? And the Billy's go, well, this is where we talked about it back on such and such page. So we had the conversation happen there, but it was also off to the side, so that if somebody was really just reading it strictly from a, a reference standpoint, um, uh, they'd get to the information they were looking for anyway. Uh, but the conversation off to the side was there to cement and provide a different access for going, oh, right, aspects work like so. Um, and there's even break, fourth wall breaking stuff of, oh, yeah. Harry's player is a jerk. Yeah. 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 Be Jim. The Jim. I think uh, a, good, a good way, at least how I approach it, 
is that within the cover to cover of the, of the book, however big the book is, or however many books there are, you're trying to build an environment wherein you are teaching somebody without clubbing them over the head with the rest of the book. You are trying to build an environment wherein you will learn something through multiple different ways, through example text, through straight out rules explanation, through, through samples, through whatever methods you need. And you're doing that, in, I like threes, because it makes my head not hurt. But you have, you have a, a collection of material that all works together. It's not one thing does it once at 100%, and then you repeat 100% a chapter later, and then 100% chapter there. It's, it's, you know, rule, it's you know, 33 here, 33 here, 33 here, and you're, you're hoping the additive effect of all the things is what helps you go, oh, that's what an aspect is. Yes, it's, my personal favorite is the second example, but the whole, the whole sum of the examples is what helps cement the concept in the reader, player, person's head. How does that work as a reference, though? If it's not all in one place, if there's no 100% spot you can go to. Because that way you have multiple options. You can go, oh, well, if you're looking for, we'll use aspects because that's what we brought up. Um, if you're looking for that, that's in chapter such and such, or, or it's, that runs from pages 1, 2, 3 to 4, 5, 6, and then it's also explained at page 72 or page 94. And you're able to point, because not everybody's going to learn it the same way from the same example. So, so each one is completely different. Correct. But Correct. Another thing. And that difference is actually important. That yes. You're not being straight Correct. up redundant. That's a better way of saying it. <clears throat> you're not being straight up redundant. It, the fact that you're explaining it a little bit different, but still, you know, with the same core truth behind it uh, each time is, you know, that's maybe the version of the explanation that cracks it up. Just like some people are visual learners and some people are textual. They're not in creating confusion if the person interprets the two explanations differently. That's why good customer service for any product that you put out into the world is important. And very good editors. That actually ties back to something you said earlier. Does anybody think an index is optional? Uh, How long is the game? (laughs) How big is the game and how complete is the table of contents? Okay. Um, but usually, it's, some kind of index is a good idea. If it's under a dozen pages, I'll say that the table of contents is necessary, but not an index. index. Yeah. There's also, I mean, yes, in an ideal world, you have an index. A bad index, though, done quickly, is just as bad as no index. Or worse. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's hard to put together an index. Ours, in this, is insane. pages and pages and pages put together by... Multiple Double people. numbers of people. I said, I said, oh, yes. I said, I said, Rob, Rob, Rob had go, its own go and try to index this first. I, I had Rob back there go and try to index the uh, book first, and I knew, knew when I was asking Rob to do it that he would also put in in jokes. Then I put it in front of other people and said, okay, what are you looking for in there? And they put some things in there and they put their own little in jokes in there. Um, uh, this so was not we, we actually tried to create an index that was both sizable, covered both books in a two volume set. Um, uh, uh, worked for multiple different people and was actually something that you could enjoy reading. I think there are interviews such as Harry the Jerk. Yes. yes. Yeah. And like, like Shut Up Bob. Shut, Shut Up Bob has many, 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 many references. Right. 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 Um, another thing I wanted to point out, we were talking about you know where things live. Um, we also have... <coughs> And most, most books that I've worked on have something along these lines where, like, okay, everything you need to know to run the game, it's right here. Not completely, because that's what the rest of the book is for. Also think about this as a sales tool, right? I mean, right. Yeah, people are going to flip to that character sheet in the back. They're also going to look for the index, but they're also going to look for the summary page. Because then they can look over and go, okay, this thing is doing completely weird things that I'm not at all comfortable with. Or, oh, yeah, okay, I get it enough. That's, that I'll be able to use that. <coughs> 
But if you know if you have to flip through all of this to find everything you need while you're running a game, that's just annoying. So it's right here, and if you need more detail, the page numbers are there too. You can never put in too many. Okay, I'm not going to say that. That's not true. <laughs> you can put in too many. Because then you get organizational numbers. problems with your index uh, as well. That. But on some level, if you are wondering, should I put in a page reference? The answer is yes. Until it gets to the point where, like, we have, we would have lists of characters, and it would be like name, page reference, name, page reference. Like, oh my gosh. You know, is... beta readers are important. I mean, yes. uh, you know, put your layout in front of playtesters and playtest your layout if yeah, you can. Absolutely. Uh, because they are going to uh, experience the text in a very different way from uh, folks who got the Word document and printed it out and had their huge, thick three-ring binder and were assured that at some point an index would come along. Um, and it looks uh, completely different in layout. You experience yep. it completely different in yep. layout. And that's another thing about organizing text. That is, again, as much layout as it is editor. Um, on Marvel Heroic Roleplaying, for instance, um, there are a bunch of different die types. And the way that um, John Harper and Jeremy Keller dealt with it is that instead of just putting like D8, it's the symbol for the D8. Mm -hmm. It's the symbol for the D6. You know, so it's actually like a die. You can see. So visually, you know immediately. And not only does it look like the dice on your table, but also that your brain makes that connection every time. And it just it shortens the amount of time that your eyes have to process in, things. In board game and card game component uh, uh, design, they call that double and triple coding, where you're uh, using both a color and a symbol mm -hmm. and a text to communicate all the same piece of information, right? So, uh, you know, the, the colors are going to be useless to people who are colorblind. Uh, that's why you also have a symbol that has a recognizable silhouette that is easily easily made distinct from any other silhouette. And the text is also there for people who are like, oh, whatever, this, this is a crazy squiggle. What does this do? Four. Okay, good. Um, uh, you know, you don't necessarily need to triple code everything, but, and I, but I think many RPGs, uh, to focus on that for a moment, um, uh, don't do better than single coding uh, in a lot of circumstances. So little little things like that uh, uh, that were done in layout, sit up and pay attention because it's it's again it's a, that additional access to reach a different kind of reader. That, that's why you're trying to cut through the text in a bunch of different ways. In board and card games, it's even more important. Super important. Um, you know, if I can look at something on the page and then look at you know the cards and the boards so and say, oh, now I get it because. As much as I'm an editor, as much as I'm a reader, I don't get things from text. I really don't. I read it and my brain kind of goes, mm. but if I read an example, that really helps me, you know, sort of a narrative explaining how it all works, or if I can see a visual, or if somebody can teach me, then I'm really understanding it. And I just have to accept that as I'm reading text, I'm only partially getting it, and it's not until I deal with this information in another way that I'm going to fully understand it. And so as much as you can put that on the page, that's going to really, really help, regardless of what kind of game instruction you're doing. Do you think of triple coding as an editor's decision or layout versus decision? Yes. 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 <laughs> right. I mean, the, the, to some extent, I think that a good... A, I'm going to give you a broad rule of thumb that's only partly true, but it, it, it works enough. Um, uh, it's the editor's job to set up... <coughs> Problems that the layout guy's job is to fix is is to address, right? I mean, the, the there's if if it has to do with presentation, right? Um, so uh, uh, an editor will look through this and say, okay, we need some sort of way to make sure that this is highlighted and this is highlighted so that it stands out. Um, uh, layout guy figured out how that works, right? Yeah. And 
there will be some back and forth there, and the editor will say, yes, that, 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 that's totally doing the job. Um, and the editor might even have a suggestion to like do a little die icon behind it. But sometimes it's just, hey, layout person, we need to make sure that any time we talk about aspects, uh, folks aren't completely uh, lost um, uh, visually, right? You know, it's flagged in some way. Um, I'd have to say, if there's double coding anywhere, it's in example text. Mm. Um, sure. Reinforcing rules by demonstrating through example close spatially to where the rule is given. Mm-hmm. Um, sidebars, etc. Yeah. That's that's where yeah, yeah. we yeah, but it's still still more sort of a linear thing. I'm talking about like within. Yeah. I'm talking about double and yeah. triple coding. I'm talking about something that actually kind of occurs in the same physical space on, on yeah. the page yeah. and so forth. But with with a book, you have the luxury of yeah. spreading that out a little bit, right? Yeah. If you want to see that, there uh, some of the Marvel games are out there. If you want to take a look at the the layout there, yeah, um, it's it's really worth noting that double and triple coding leads in internationalization. That's well. true. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, uh, although you need to be careful about what yeah. sort of symbols you use. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Like, a really, oh, yeah, so we're using a cross to sim- symbolize healing. Oh. A really broad example of, yeah. of, of really simple coding is Trivial Pursuit. Uh, every every little yeah. wedge of pie has a specific color uh, and a specific two or three letter icon that represents you know mm-hmm. pop culture is PC and it's light blue and I, I it's it's in my head because I played you know like five games and I totally get that every time I see light blue oh that's going to be a pop culture question hooray I can answer that and that's really simple that that you don't need a fancy icon you don't need to go out and go crazy trying to find the perfect typography of you know, this symbol that I have to have the layout guide somehow develop and then mass produce, it can just be as simple thing as like an acronym. That so long as you don't duplicate it and mean, you know, have it mean multiple things for you, that's just as easy and linear and easy to understand. One thing you need to keep in mind too, vaguely related to this, your layout guy or girl is Person. not going to read your book. They're not going to have a full understanding of what you're trying to convey. I'm just sort of lightly caressing the text and like saying, okay, I'm reading this long enough to go, okay, this is what's important, bam. And then I'm generally dealing with things at a very macro level. And so Uh, if you don't pull that stuff out with very clear instructions, mm -hmm. it's not going to get presented the way that you think it needs to be. Ask your layout person how they want that to be marked up. I like lots of stuff to be just be marked up in plain text rather than styled or anything like that because I don't trust those styles to persist as they're taken through various conversion uh, things in the process of, of going there. I like stuff that looks kind of like a very lightweight proto-HTML or, or similar. Um, uh, there are a number of ways, different ways you can do it. Um, and so long as that's done consistently, I can also do like certain find and replace style uh, uh, applications that will strip those tags out but style the text. Um, so I'm doing a lot of wholesale things with the text that don't involve actually comprehending it. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's why the editor getting making sure that that stuff is done rigorously uh, is, is so important in the handoff. I have, a, I have a question. Um, that was a segue to uh, what mechanisms do you folks like and don't like uh, for writers to convey that sort of information to editors and to their people, for editors to... Like, do, you, do you prefer Word documents with styles in them? Do you prefer text markup? Do you prefer, like, like with, with tags, a header tag or, you know, first level heading tag or, or put this, you know, bold this, please? Or I, I used to think that I would prefer um, a good and consistent use of word styles, but 
Uh, Word vigorously tries to kick you in the teeth anytime you try to apply that, even if you are thinking you're applying stuff consistently. Like, oh, then I switched the font on this, and I thought I was switching the style, but now everything that looks like it's not bolded is actually carrying the style bold living behind it somewhere. And then it comes into the layout program, and bam, you've got this entire chapter that's bold-faced. Right. Um, uh, so, like I was saying, that's that's why I prefer like plain text markup kind of style uh, uh, stuff with that. Now, one of the issues with that is that that makes it harder for the writers much and editors. Yeah. It's much harder to, to picture how it's going to look because you have to start pulling these carrot things out as you're like you have to not read them as you're so, going so, through. So, there's an, actually an interesting middle ground that lives there where you do style the text, but you don't treat the styling of the text as authoritative. So you might do like a bracket one, close bracket, use that header level style one on that so that it's readable as a, as a level one header, but the only thing that the, your layout guy is actually going to pay attention to when that comes in is what's in that bracket. That just mess things up? Nope. Yeah, because I can, I can always, I can always <laughs> turn it into essentially a plain text document and then import it. And then style it based on no. uh, only the market. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Explain that slowly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, please. You know why I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, so let's say that you have a sentence, and in the middle of it you have a word that is bold-faced. Um, you want your people who are reading and editing it to perceive it as bold-faced when they look at it. Um, but uh, that bold-facing might disappear through whatever conversion process, sure, when that sure. is that the sentence is then taken and put into layout. So what you might do is put like um, bracket B close bracket word, you know, and then whatever signifies the end of that boldface uh, thing, but then actually boldface the text in there. Um, so that way, I, there, yeah, there's a little bit of annoying markup in there that people have to parse past, but uh, they'll still, in reading it as an English word, uh, get 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 that get that same kind of emphasis. You're double marking it, yeah, and then yeah. transfer it to a text. It's kind of like double coding, right? But it, it also actually means that when you're doing that styling stuff, you don't you don't actually have to be quite so consistent on that part of it, so long as your markup is what's is is what's the consistent. Style guide that we're operating off right now, right? Well, right. The, the style guide that we're operating off that you'll have right now is talks by and large strictly about the layout needs of that that actual textual. Oh, okay. uh, markup, um, but for your reading and editing purposes, you could apply styles there. You just can't trust that that's going to live into uh, the layout process. Yeah, Fred, remind me to share with you at some point because I set up a bunch of macros and regular expressions that turns our formatting into document formatting in Word. Yeah. Oh. Anyone wants to spend a little time with search and replace can do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Because um, depending on the company that you're working with, you might have different needs. For instance, with Margaret West Productions, Cam Banks hates markup. He just hates it. And so we are getting these styles. Now what that means is we have editors who are paying very, very close attention to styles, and then we have exhaustive proofreading of post-layout yeah. because those things are always going to sneak in. Now it does give us visual cues. I mean, yeah. you can just go through. It's, it's a lot easier in a lot of ways to edit it because your lists all line up and your tables line up in ways that they don't mark up. Absolutely. Um, and so there is an advantage to that, but it never goes over smoothly. Yeah. Never, I mean, ever. Yeah, yeah. Ever. You, can al you can always do it such that you're, you're, you're doing your styling and so forth through the, your entire editing process, and then you're hopefully paying an editor an additional fee to then sit down and put in all of the missing markup, but if you can get your writers to do it too, that's the, the, it, it helps throughout the process. I just wish there was a way to kind of say, uh, hide this, now show it. Well, especially because as far as like emphasis and so on, 
or bolding, the writer's going to know that better than the editor is. Mm -hmm. Because often those things do convey meaning from the writer that the editor may or may not pick up on. And so, you know, I do want writers marking up text in that way because they have their reasons for, I might not do it later. I also try to make sure... I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep talking. I also try to make sure that our markup text is based around the role of why something is being emphasized or, or, or called out or something like that, rather than calling it, oh yeah, this is bold. No, it should be, this is called out bold because it's terminology. Right, this is right. called out so, bold because it's uh, it emphasis. It's called out bold because it's profanity. I don't know. What, yeah. whatever, the, whatever the purposes are of, of emphasizing something in the text, because that divorces the notion of the formatting choice that I made by hitting Control-B or whatever, uh, 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 from the purpose, right? The layout guy actually needs to know the purpose because they may make different yes. formatting choices in each particular kind of application. Uh, we have to well, one thing I personally like in a book is, it, especially if you're going to use different terms than normal, a basic terms list near yes. the beginning. So yeah, we have a glossary, I believe. Yeah. 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 yeah, just like right in the front. This way, even if somebody's, you know, flips through, they're going to notice little things versus, like, like target number versus yeah. difficulty class. Look at, look at, like, grade school textbooks yeah. and, and see what sort of tools they put in there to make the learning easier for kids because uh, uh, a role-playing game is, uh, is essentially a textbook. It, it's an instructional text. And they, they, they are, of, of anything in book publishing, uh, textbooks are the closest thing to what role-playing uh, game books are like. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've gone across a lot of different fields. Uh, so. I, I've done textbooks, and I've done grade school books, and I've done all manner of textbooks from you know the basic elementary stuff to collegiate and doctoral level text. And role-playing games are cousins to 6th, yeah. 7th, 8th grade texts. They're, they're not basic, and some are, some are less basic than others, but they're certainly not higher end. You're not, you, there's a difference between, say, the Dresden Files book and your doctoral level chemistry text. Just on the basis of layout alone, uh, color presentation, font, styling, all that. There's also a level of conversation in the text that is more akin to sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. That's not to say it's sophomoric or anything. It's just that that's sort of the the the, the technical term is sound color. The sound color, the, the way it comes across, the the attitude is more in that sort of general. Anybody could pick this up, read it, and start to grasp it after one or two passes. Uh, one thing I want to just mention is uh, Mike Cook's talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he modeled after uh, guidebooks uh, for you know for touring mm-hmm. rather than a textbook, because yeah. he had to describe a place. Well, and his, yeah. that, that's an aggressively setting-driven product yes. as opposed Very. to a number of other uh, kind of applications for books. Which is another good point. It really depends on what you're doing. I mean, not all books are created equal. Not all, not even equal. Not what I mean. But they don't serve the same purpose. You know, if you are doing a setting book, it's going to be different. If you're doing, you know, short instructions for something, it's only going to be a couple of pages. It's going to be different. If you're doing, you know, everything you ever need to know about the game, it's going to be different. And you need to make sure that you are organizing in a way that works for that. And it's not all going to be the same. Actually, th- th- that's reminding me. Um, uh, also, when uh, the, we, we've talked some about the, the partnership uh, between editor and layout person, at the time that the editor says... This text is com- you know, completely done, layout ready. You can, you can go on that and hence the layout person. That's not actually the end of the job. Um, uh, there, there are multiple points. 
not just looking over the layout and saying yes, 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 but there may be multiple points uh, during the layout process where the person's like, this would work really well if the text exactly fit on two facing pages. I'm three sentences over. Tell me what I can cut. Yeah. Um, and you know, sometimes the layout person will then just drag it down so the text is you know, spilling off the bottom of the page and will say to the editor, fix this, I'm gonna go do the rest of the pages after this, but I need to make sure that this doesn't cause the rest of them to flow out of, out of whack once I, once I shorten that container yeah. up again. Um, I, th I think Amanda and I did the number of that thing. Yeah. That things, and that's actually how, how some of the marginalia got in, in B. It wasn't originally intended as marginalia as written in the text, but I'd be like, We're, we've got two extra sentences here. And she'd go, oh, that could become marginalia over here. Sorry, not the, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's a tough, tough love here at Evil Hat. And please give it back to your editor for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because nobody is going to know the text as well as the editor. And oh my gosh, it makes me cry when somebody else goes in and pulls something thinking it's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Acknowledgement pages always go in after editing for some reason, and they're always. <laughs> yes. yes. And the back text, for God's sake, let like your editor to proofread the back text. Yes, please. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right, we don't have that much more time, so questions. Anybody have specific questions, or we'll just keep at them. Uh, have you guys ever used a, a tool that does uh, semantic markup with a LaTeX document or something like that? Uh, well, LaTeX is its own, um, uh, I don't know, kick to the face. Uh, but. Uh, it's it's very very rigorous and is specifically oriented on uh, providing a way to consistently present all mathematical texts um, uh, as its original genesis, right? I mean, it's it's kind of been expanded to do stuff, um, but uh, uh, yeah, a long time ago I flirted with uh, like using LaTeX more, than it just it's. No, I mean, I, I think I think the most you want to look at is stuff like Markdown or or Rob has some ideas. So why don't actually, we let talk? Actually, I have a question because this is actually something Fred and I can talk about. I'm a big proponent of multi Markdown, but there are limitations to it which are problematic for Fred, which I don't actually know. Well, some of, some of that has to do with it not being easy for me to figure out what regular expression I need to construct in order to reliably search and replace things so that I'm not bolt-facing the entire chapter, but I'm instead only bolt-facing a certain thing. Uh, there are elements of Markdown when I've looked at it, it's not always clear to me that I could easily construct a regular expression that is, that's a specific kind of geeky <laughs> pattern match. Um, uh, uh, that would uh, let me make sure that I stop the bolting when I need to start it and so forth. So there so I, I would prefer like modified markdown. Like yes, we could do certain things this way, but these other things are are going to be are going to be prone to lots of error. If I'm trying to do the, I've got ten thousand words all all in layout. Now I'm going to do a search and replace to cause this formatting to occur across all of it, and then I get twenty six pages into you know, like parsing through what that's done, and suddenly I see that it's wrecked the next seventy. Um, it, that that's where I get oh, worried about. But we're going to have some conversation on coming with the list of tools. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 yeah, if, if you're going to do so, if you're if you're going to suggest a different kind of approach to uh, uh, formatting, uh, see if you can help your layout person find out how to construct search and replace uh, strategies that will allow that stuff to be styled uh, usefully. Um, I'm just going to give a call out to one piece of software which I find invaluable. Uh, Scrivener. Yes. Scrivener. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, it's it. 40 bucks. Get Scrivener. It's now on Windows. It has been a Mac only product, which oh, wow. has been amazing. Yeah. Yes. 
uh, and is now available. What does it do that, it, that, that you feel helps this? It functions in the same way as LaTeX, except it's organized. It allows you to move text content. It breaks down the text into modules that you can move around mm-hmm. in the hierarchy. Uh, say, oh, now you're in the guidance chapter under the GM advice section. Just drag. How's yeah, that I, different than words uh, outline mode? Dramatically more efficient. It allows and it it's, exports. It's a paradigm shift. You're 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 really dealing with a document as a collection of lots of little tiny containers rather than a continuous document yeah. that happens to be representable by that. And it maintains styles. It exports cleanly to a large number of them, and it will maintain styles, unlike work. Yeah, uh, it's just it's uh, some people are not. Uh, Enthusiastic about making that paradigm shift. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, there is a learning curve with Scrivener. I've, I've certainly opened it a few times and been like, <sighs> and moved on to other things. The, the and, tutorial and is, and ultimately, at some point in your process, you are going to have to hand that off to uh, someone in a in a more common format. And uh, then, if changes then need to keep being made after something has been done with that, you're you're, you're stuck in that exported format. So at some point, your Scrivener yeah. stops being Scrivener. If you um, need something more light-duty on the Mac side, like a folding text... That, that's good for getting ideas yeah, down, for, but... If you, want, if you want to do more organized writing than just a screen, you want to keep it and just have a little bit of uh, yeah. organized, the screener's a little bit too much, I mean, folding text on the Mac and write monkey on the top. Yeah, I mean, what I, what, what I would say about that, that stuff is that, uh, I mean, I, I think Scrivener's probably a very useful tool for writers. It might be a somewhat useful tool for your editors, but the process that I would envision happening there more is that uh, your writer does stuff in Scrivener, your editor says, uh, uh, this is the sort of organization we want to see to the book. Uh, Could you put this chapter before that chapter, this paragraph before that paragraph? The writer does that in Scrivener and then exports it to Word, and the uh, editor then turns on track changes um, and and, and you get then can get good visibility to the edits as they're happening. The revision process happens, all of those get approved, the layout person takes the word file, goes through and says, accept all changes at this point, because if you don't accept all changes before it goes out into layout, you may find both the old version and the new version in the in showing up, uh, because they both exist in, in, until you accept the changes. But it, that, that's the kind of path that you, you, you can see happening with a Scrivener as part of the workflow. It's just, it very much exists as the prefix on the process. It's the, it's the early phase. It's the it, initial it start, structure. It starts to be something that you can't necessarily work within. Right. Yeah, that's why I said there's, there's a learning curve to it. But it, it, I, I find it uh, that authors who use it get that fanatic gleam when they talk about it. So for, for those people for whom it works... Yeah. What, what can writers do to make the process easier for the editors? Um, one thing... Okay. Well, I mean, there, there are a couple of things. One is that you need to know what you're bringing your... It depends on the relationship that you have to some extent, but you need to know what you're bringing your editor to do. Um, so, I mean, it depends on if you're work for hire or if you're, you know, whatever. Um, but you don't want your editor looking at a first draft unless you're looking at major developmental editing. You know, if, you, if you're doing developmental editing, and you're going to be working together with this editor to really, you know, deal with content and organization and all that kind of stuff, then yes, you know, first or second draft in, by all means, bring in your editor. 
but you don't want to hand something off that you think is almost final, that you have a spell check, that you haven't made sure that all of the names are correct, that you haven't proofread and edited yourself extensively before you hand it over to fresh eyes. That said, you might want to occasionally consult with them on, on certain things, certain yeah. decisions. Yeah. You send them excerpts, don't give them a wall of text because they're not going to be able to resist the need to tinker and, yes. and all that stuff. Uh, that's going to be a distraction from the yeah. purpose of that early kind of consult. Yeah, right? I, w- I would say the, the critical thing is to communicate throughout the whole process. You're not just handing them your thing and then saying, okay, get it back to me in X number of days, weeks, months, and then expect not to hear from them or communicate with them, and then just magically like a Christmas gift, you get a finished document. Speaking as a publisher, that's huge because often the publisher is perceiving the editor as the owner of the timeline deliverability of the text yeah. into the, the later part, the finishing stages of it. Um, uh, so if a writer is not communicating to the editor about how things are coming along, um, the editor's left swinging in the breeze and might end up getting the blame for uh, for yeah. screw up. To, to, to further avoid that problem, because it has happened to me before with other things, the uh, if, if I have to talk to a writer about a problem they keep constantly having, like they always go into the passive voice, or they're always making this fundamental error that can be solved if we had one conversation. Um, the ability to have that conversation and go, okay, look, this is the 11th time I've told you stop using the semicolon, you're using it wrong then I want to be able to know that I'm able to communicate and you're going to go, okay, I will give it a try. As opposed to, oh, whatever, John, you just edit my thing and I'll write you a check. Which is fine if you want to be kind of cold that way, but I prefer working with somebody who's going to communicate with me and go, this sort of writing is not my strongest. What can I do to make it better? So I can sit down and take five extra seconds and go, oh, all right, I know going in what to expect. I know to expect a couple red flags so I can steer through them rather than just come to this cold and go, no, this whole thing is crap. And I mean, if, if you're working word, insert comment thing, yeah, if, you, if you know, I'm like, uh, this is an awkward yeah. sentence. I have not figured out how to deal with it. Well, um, here's what I'm trying to say. Have I how said do, How do I say it? Yeah. You're going to style better Bible project as you go. Yeah. 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 Please. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Don't assume that the editor can read your mind or is going to... The, the, things that you are assuming are going to be <coughs> with your editor. Because part of why you're bringing in that editor is because they're not going to share yeah, your if you're, if you're, And if you're, if, if you're doing a, like your first project together or your first, your first project for your company or something like that, you might not have predefined a, a style guide or something like that. So this is a great time to be working with your editor to evolve that style guide yeah. and update it as, as each new decision gets made. Uh, because that's going to need to be handed on for people to do follow-on stuff well, to whatever. The writer doesn't know what their style guide was. You give them. You, yeah, yeah, you, you build one. Uh, I, I spent a lot. Your style guide. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we work together. <laughs> These yeah, things yeah. that you did that I liked are our style guide. These things that <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like, that like, I didn't like. Yes. Well, are, you come back from writing a code from a code writing yeah. analogy. That sometimes that's better. You don't want the writer spending a lot of time thinking about mechanics of the stuff. You want them solving the problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And the more I think. Yeah, that's that's definitely a two way thing. I mean you can pay me if you want to fix your typos and change your spelling, but you could do that and then you could be paying me to actually, you know, really make the text better and clearer and all of those things. If I have to fix all the typos as I'm going through, I'm not reading the text as closely as I want to be. And that's I'm not, not to say you have to be typo per, typo absent, no. but no, oh, no. of course these eyes are going to catch less. But but you know if you're doing the I hired an editor so that I don't have to polish this. I mean, you can. <laughs> editors don't mind the check. Right, exactly. Oh, no. But but no, not at all. basically your work hasn't really been edited because I spent all my time fixing the stuff you didn't bother to. 
you know, or if you're willing to bleed a little bit more money onto, onto the project, get two people, one specifically with a job of you know, making sure that the copy uses the right spellings of words and at least ha they handle some of the like awkward sentence structure, but then you have another person who's doing a, like a clarity pass, mm -hmm. uh, because if you give them something that has a lot of those I, I guess more mechanical things to, to, to fix about the text um, that is completely eating their attention rather than yeah. looking at the sort of more macro clarity consideration, which is actually the more important um, although a typo will frequent typos will kill your product uh, any more questions? I think we are almost We're trying to shine the mark, so let's call it. Awesome. Right. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Great question.